Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Welcome back, folks, to the WP Tonic Roundtable Show every Friday at 8.30 Pacific Standard Time. And you can join us on Facebook as well and watch the show live. Go to the WP Tonic Show page and you'll be able to watch this show. And we've got a great panel here. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Um, if it's anything like last week's, it's going to be interesting. Uh, I'm going to let Sally, one of our great regular panelists, introduce herself. Would you like to introduce yourself, Sally? Certainly. My name is Sally Getch. My business is WP Fangirl. I build custom Genesis sites for growing businesses and nonprofits. And I'm the organizer of the East Bay WordPress Meetup in Oakland, California. That's great. Would you like to introduce yourself, John? Sure thing. My name's John Locke, and I help manufacturers with SEO. And the great Morton, can you um, introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Morton. I'm a senior staff instructor with LinkedIn Learning and Lynda.com, and I have a lot of opinions. And so do I, don't I? By evidence of last week, really. Um, and, um, it, it, that's the criteria for joining this, the show. Yeah, you, right? have you have to have opinions. Yes, that, knowledge is secondary, but yeah. opinions are important. That is obvious because of me. Uh, uh, Mendel, Mendel, would you like to introduce yourself? Yo, 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 yo. I'm Mendel. Uh, hey, I, uh, I, work, I work at GoDaddy, uh, working on the pro stuff over there, and uh, generally just a community guy. Um, living in a community world. I don't know. That was my worst intro that I've ever done on the show. But uh, there you It was a bit feeble, but, you know, maybe you've had a hard night or something. I don't know. I don't know. I'll try harder <laughs> next time. All right, there we go. And Chris. Would you my like name's to you? Chris Badgett. I'm the co-founder of Lifter WordPress plugin for creating, selling, and protecting courses. And I also have a podcast for course creators and membership site builders called LMSCast. And that's great. And I think we've got another panelist. Tom, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm trying to figure out how to get my camera on. All right. When he's got his camera, we're, we're introducing properly. Uh, oh, yeah, here he comes. Oh, all right. Uh, um, and we might have some other people joining us. Um, Dr. Evil. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean it. Uh, um, so let's go straight into the stories. And we'll start with number one, a plea for plugin developers to stop supporting legacy PHP versions. Not the most exciting title, but I thought it, uh, it had some relevance. Would you like to start with this, Moulton? Sure. The, uh, this falls very much in line with what I've been pestering Matt Mullenweg about over the past couple of years, that uh, WordPress needs to start leading uh, charge to further the quality of the web by making wise decisions. Uh, one of the, I've, I've talked to some web hosts people, and I'm sure Mendel can e- extract like widen this uh, discussion um, about how because WordPress often people often have very old WordPress sites that run very old versions of uh, PHP, and that actually holds the standard PHP version back several numbers simply because people don't upgrade. And then plugin developers and theme developers, in an effort to serve everyone, then dumps down their code to older PHP standards so that it can run on these older sites. But what we need to do is say, hey, WordPress needs to push a bit here because there's no reason to run old uh, PHP versions. We should upgrade our code to use modern PHP and then notify the users of these sites that they need to upgrade their servers. Uh, we're more likely just click a button inside their shared hosting panel and then uh, move forward. So I 100% agree with this. Yes, um, my position on it, the re- one of the reasons why I chose the story is that I think it's also linked to WordPress and legacy supporting um, old versions of WordPress because obviously um, we might be coming to a point where this, um, where this um, key assumption that it will um, work with whatever old version of WordPress you're running 
um, might be coming to end. What do you reckon, Rendell? Yeah, uh, <laughs> my, uh, Morton Morton gave me a great um, a great intro to the to the hosting question. I I think from a host perspective, um, we're we're driven by what causes the least pain for customers. And so, unfortunately, in some cases, with a small business that doesn't know anything about PHP, has never even heard uh, heard that, except for um, Pint House Pizza here in Austin. Um, <laughs> they, uh, which, by the way, their logo is PHP, which is amazing. Uh, funny side note. Um, but uh, like, our our goal is our goal is to keep them from having pain. And one of the things that causes them pain is having to upgrade or having to um, uh, figure out that a plugin isn't working because their site white screens. And so these are, these are difficult technical challenges that we have to figure out um, how to upgrade people um, be, being one of the largest WordPress hosts, right? Like, like how to upgrade hundreds of thousands of people um, without their site dying and without them having to um, have a, you know, a web professional intervene. So it's, it's, it's a difficult challenge. That being said, I, I agree with Morton um, that in, in order for hosts to um, continue to be pushed to upgrade PHP versions, um, if the WordPress project as a whole says, listen, this, this just simply isn't going to work on an earlier version of PHP, um, like we're not going to stand still, right? Um, so uh, that, like, I'm sure my company uh, hates me to say this, but like, put as much pressure as you can on the hosts, right? Because um, that that means that uh, it's going to level everybody up. So, yeah, I also think you know, it's, you know, it's another subject about like what um, Walton said. It's about leadership because I, I, I think some. It, I think WordPress has dropped some of the lower versions, not supporting them. What do you think, Sally? Oh, I've been hearing <clears throat> developers complain about legacy, you know, about old versions of PHP and, and how it limits them, uh, you know, for years. And uh, I found actually the original Delicious Brains article uh, before uh, the WP Tavern article. And, and, you know, it's impressive the way they lay out the data about, you know, how many sites are actually using, you know, PHP 5.2, uh, and which is very few, uh, or at least a small percentage. I, I'm sure it's still a, a, you know, a large enough absolute number. Um, and, uh, you know, what features have been brought in uh, to different versions of, of PHP. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, I have found that, it's become easier on most of the hosts that my clients use to upgrade your PHP version. And if you're keeping everything else updated in terms of your plugins and your theme and your WordPress core, then most of the time that's going to go fairly uh, smoothly. I only, um, you know, I remember something broke when I upgraded to PHP 7.1, like right after it came out and I, I went back to, to 7.0, but that was pretty much a matter of, Oh, okay. So you go back into your control panel and you click this button and hit save. And you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty easy there, but um, you know, for, for hosts to say, all right, we're going to switch our default PHP version for new sites. It uh, seems like something that makes sense. Uh, and that I've, I've, seen happening uh and yeah i mean you know there there's going to be some issues with uh some pain points for for people who really you know they set their stuff up they haven't really touched it or upgraded it or done anything with it and and things will break uh if the host just decides to you know upgrade their php version in in the background and so they're you know i'm i'm glad that's not my problem to figure out you know my problem is uh making sure that that i get uh, you know, all of my clients onto modern versions of PHP. I just, you know, found a client, <clears throat> have, a, have a new client, found out they were on PHP 5.4. You know, I had to have the Media Temple staff kind of talk me through how do I add a, a new PHP version to Plesk and, and 
figure it out, but they were quite, you know, friendly and helpful about that. And, and I got it done. And it's like, yes, look at that. It's amazing how much faster the site is, you know, just from doing that. Yeah, I think, I think you just touched some really interesting subjects. Just to, I'm going to bring Tom into this um, in a second. Um, it's just that, because it doesn't break, even if you're running some godforsaken, really old version um, of PHP. But on the other hand, that's a really great testament to WordPress in a way. But also, it's one of the reasons why one of the reasons why these old versions keep hanging around, and it has a consequence because I think it also gives uh, a reputation of WordPress being a bit slow. Um, it slows your website down, blah, 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 this bad reputation because you've got all these people running really old. One of the reasons is you've got people running really old versions of PHP. What do you reckon, Tom? Well, I think, you know, the, the, there's a few reasons I think it's good to update. Um, one of the biggest things is that, you know, PHP has just gotten a bad rap for a bunch of years. And I think it was very valid back in the PHP 4 days. Um, but PHP has done a lot of great things, adding traits and closures and um, anonymous functions and, and, you know, getting better with its object-oriented type hinting and so forth. And I think there's a lot of people that are, you know, moving to Node and moving to other, not that JavaScript's necessarily a great object-oriented model, but, you know, moving to these other technologies because it supports the things they learn in college. Um, and so if we stay back in these older versions, you're going to get computer science majors that don't want to work with, with, don't want to work with these technologies. Yeah. You need to increase your mic volume, Tom, because okay. you're a bit quiet. But I thought that was fantastic. Um, Adam, we've got Adam from WP Crafter joining us. Would you like to just quickly introduce yourself, Adam? Sure thing. Uh, my name's Adam from WPCrafter.com. And uh, as to this discussion, I haven't heard everything that was said prior to me joining on. I usually join on a little bit later than everybody else. Um, I do. The only thing I would want to say about this whole PHP thing is I think it's a web host issue. Uh, I think a web, web host, you know, what was it? Two years ago, I think Bluehost wrote an article about how they wrote some kind of automated script to see what version everybody's WordPress websites were on, and they pushed a button and upgraded everybody. Uh, I think web hosts need to um, be the, they're the problem. They're the ones that need to figure out how to test for compatibility on everybody's WordPress website on their service. And they need to figure out how to then notify them that you can upgrade this. We would like to do it for you. And as a matter of fact, we're going to do it for you on this date. I think that's the only way it's ever going to happen. You can't ask a user who doesn't even know the WordPress login to. <laughs> uh, and you can't, you can't be the plugin developer that says, I'm going to be the bad guy and, and you know, force you to do something that you don't even know how to do. Uh, because... I don't know if there's like a survey been done of all the WordPress websites, how many just the random persons managing versus actually having someone that is paid to manage it for them. And I'm sure the vast majority of WordPress websites is just some dude out of, you know, uh, their office or their bedroom at home. That's it. Uh, it's a web hosting problem. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. I think, um, I think we covered that story. On to the next. <laughs> on to the next one, as I say. And um, the next one is Facebook fallouts. Um, and I saw an interview from a, a geezer that I really respect when it comes to commenting, and that's Scott Galloway. Um, he's um, he's head of um, he's a lecturer at NYU Stern School of Business, and plus he's got a very popular. YouTube channel. I think it's actually more popular than yours, Adam, actually. Uh, um, uh, um, and he tells it how he sees it. So they got him on, um, I think it was Canadian television. I don't think they would have him on the American. I'm not sure. Uh, um, and he, um, he told it as he saw it, uh, which is basically Facebook in a little bit of trouble here. So I'm going to throw this over to a fellow CEO, Chris. So what, what do you, how do you think Facebook, how would you mark them in the way they're dealing with their slight problems, Chris? I thought it was a great uh, video or article. Um, crisis management is a part of business. 
I'm on the board of directors for a couple different companies. I mentor some young companies. I have a company of my own. Everybody gets crises. And I thought uh, what, what he was saying about immediately addressing the problem, the number one leader needs to be right there up front. And then the, the big thing, the company needs to overcorrect on the issue. It's just classic textbook crisis management. And he said what he's saying is that this is going to become a historical event of how I'll do it. But um, basically, I don't, there's not that much I have and succinctly describe how to go about crisis management. And I think Facebook needs, it could learn from that a lot. Yeah, I'm going to say something here, and I'm going to sound a real bitch for saying it, but it's it just it was just my instantaneous result. I saw old Mark Zuckerberg on the old telly um, giving the interview, and it was part of the crisis control that they're doing over this. And basically, Mark, I wanted to vomit over my computer. You know, basically, you were going on about your kids and how you've softened as a person and being a father made you a better person. Look, Mark, you're Mark Zetterberg. We all know your past and how you've dealt with your business partners and anybody else that's come across your um, vision uh, in business. There's nothing soft about you, Mark. Uh, um, Am I being really cruel here, uh, Morton, or was some of my reaction a bit true, really? I think you're just being nicely jaded and cynical. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, people do grow up, and I I gather that, you know, uh, there are folks in the business world who think, that Mark Zuckerberg has, you know, matured as a CEO, but but it doesn't make, it doesn't necessarily make him a wonderful person. Uh, And, uh, you know, that there are doubtless some fundamental aspects of personality that, that won't change. But uh, yes, I spare myself from watching things like Mark Zuckerberg and on video, but I've certainly seen a lot of articles from my, uh, public relations friends about how this is a you know a textbook case of how not to respond to a crisis, uh, you know, and we've seen a bunch of those from from different companies. Uh, but I think you know where Jonathan wants to take this is not so much about Mr. Zuckerberg himself, but you know what are we going to do uh, as developers uh, to ensure that our clients aren't putting their customers' data at risk. Uh, See, the other, the other factor is my, my position about Facebook is because of its history, because of its historical history, and this has been an ongoing, um, could say concern, ongoing conversation from almost day one where Facebook became a notable social media platform has been the sharing of data. And I just have this attitude. If I put anything, anything on Facebook, every Tom, Dick and Harry in the world is any personal details, anything I share with Facebook, I consider it is going to be given to almost anybody. who. that's That's because you understand how this stuff works. You're, you can't you can't make that assumption about the majority of people who use Facebook. Right. The way Facebook and other social media services present themselves, they don't explicitly tell you, you know, when you share stuff here, we are going to sell your information and use that money and use that information to target you with all sorts of crazy stuff and basically try to lock you into our platform. Like, there's all this, um, there's this concept of... Um, reasonable expectation of privacy, a reasonable expectation of use and all that kind of stuff that they've gone out of their way to... This is Facebook. There are no reasonable expectations. Well, that's the thing though. We all work in tech, right? We understand how the stuff works. We're super cynical about how information is used. We understand that once you put stuff onto the internet, it's very hard to take it off the internet and all that stuff. The majority of Facebook users do not work in tech. They don't have this information. All they know is I can put 
my picture on here and then other people can see it and then I can chat with my friends. They don't realize that when they do that, there's an algorithm in the back that runs profiles on them and then tries to target them with the specific ads they want. And they may notice that, you know, if they look up something on Amazon, all of a sudden their entire Facebook. Uh, yes, they, they, they will, they will they perhaps start they to wonder why they see <clears throat> the same ads everywhere. But they don't necessarily understand why that is. And they don't realize that Facebook earns an enormous amount of money off targeting them with advertising, right? So when, but what's interesting about this particular story and what Jonathan was talking about is when Mark Zuckerberg goes on TV and says, you know, we made mistakes and we're going to make things better. Not mistakes, the, not mistakes at all. The story of, of Cambridge Analytica first broke in 2013, then broke again in November 2016 and it took 15 months from the huge reveal that happened on Motherboard until they actually did anything about it. I mean, from Motherboard basically published, you know, Cambridge Analytica has used this data to profile 50 million people. There's an article published in 2016 that says exactly that. And then Cambridge Analytica is like, that's not what we did. We just took the information from you know, 250,000 people. And then we followed that chain to all their friends. And then the journalist is like, so 50 million people then. Yes, but that's not, what, it's just absurd, right? So that happened in November, 2016. It took until, or uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, November, 2016. And then it took a huge amount of time before Facebook is like, oh shit, there's an actual story in New York Times. We need to block them now right? So yeah, they made mistakes, but the mistakes they made were in building the entire ecosystem that they, they created. It's uh, not that they made a mistake in blocking this particular service. Yeah, but they it's actually also, designed a system to make this possible. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. It's also the culture, isn't it? Because like I read a guy, I read a book recently, a guy that worked for Facebook and he talks about Cheryl Zenberg, who's the CEO of Facebook. And she, she was brought in to bring this caring culture into Facebook, you know, when, and he describes having a meeting with her and um, she likes all the people to discuss their family problems and blah, blah, blah. And he said, he go in and had this discussion with her first time. Next day, he was told he's sacked. <laughs> so, uh, and, so yeah, go, uh, go, uh, go ahead. It's fine. Yeah. Well, he's, I just, got nauseaism for these pseudo-liberals who, well, the, like um, Mark and his senior... All right, Dan, well, you said you weren't going to get political uh, today. I mean, it in, in a cultural way. I meant it in a cultural way, Mendel. Uh, um, they, they wrap themselves, and Scott Galloway's really mentioned this quite a bit, that they wrap themselves in this caring... Um, you know, it, you know, kind of. Um, I'm looking for the right word in here. You know, they're caring, sharing types, and the, they're hardcore business. You know, they cut your throat for a dollar if they get hold of you. Uh, um, what do you reckon, John? Have I, have I been really totally cynical here? Well, it's it's like the saying goes: if if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. And I think the same could be said. I mean, it's not just Facebook. Let's face it. It's Instagram. It's Twitter. It's Google. It's Amazon. It's basically any technology company where they're collecting data. Um, and especially like on social networks or, or services that you use for free. So it's basically... The, the, the reason, yeah. One of the other reasons why I bring it in is that WordPress.com takes a lot of data off you. Yeah. If you want to set up a WordPress.com account or use Jetpack, they, they take a ton of data off you. Mm. Uh, hopefully that they're um, not going to go down the WordPress route and sell this to every Tom, Dick and Harry that comes their way. What do you reckon, Adam? Well, what people don't realize is... Our data has been collected and sold for decades. It wasn't Facebook before. There wasn't a Facebook. It was your cable company and your your TV watching habits and uh, all sorts of things. Our data has been collected. Our credit bureaus, you know what I mean? What We had that Equifax break last year. I'm more concerned with my social security number being out there versus like my pictures of me and a cat, you know, on Facebook or the things I like on Facebook anyway. Um, yes, personally, I'm 
best part is when somebody can connect the two. Yeah. I'll say this, and yeah. I'll just jump in really quick here, and I'm not meaning to cut you off, Adam, but no, it's good. Uh, I'll just say this. Me and the wife, we were talking uh, the other day about, like, we need to go buy some melatonin or whatever to help us sleep or whatever. And, uh, it, like, and we didn't buy it online. We didn't mention it in Facebook or Google it on Google. But on Facebook, she said she started seeing ads for melatonin. So you tell me what's up. Um, I, I, I have a, I have a different perspective from everybody on this call. Can I, can I voice it? Is that all right? That's why you're here. That's why you're here. I don't want to get in trouble here, but listen, I've got, I've got, I've got three points. Uh, number one, Facebook is an immature company. They're experimental. They're not, um, they're not what you believe they, they are. Um, that was very, very apparent. Uh, when I attended F8 two years ago and listened to Zuckerberg talk about um, every experiment that he wanted to run. It's not, it, it, it's not, um, it's not a hundred year old company. Right. Um, and so this is, this is a startup that has achieved a large amount of success in a short amount of time and to, and, and even though, even though this is a company worth billions of dollars, just because it's worth billions of dollars doesn't mean that it doesn't still have the maturity of a startup, right? And so, so I think what we're seeing here is um, a company that had explosive growth that was able to achieve way more than they thought that they would achieve in such a short amount of time. And now they're dealing with the impl- the, the moral uh, implications of um, of of trying to build a business, right? I'm not defending them. I think um, I think I, I think any time somebody feels uncomfortable with the way their data is being used, that's a that's a problem. What I'm what I'm saying is that we're all thinking of Facebook as like this gargantuan like you know IBM type company, right? Like hundred thousand employees, and they've been around for ages, and they're and they're slow rolling to like trample over everybody's rights. And speak speak for yourself, Mendel. It, it, it's precisely their immaturity as a company and, and the entire kind of Silicon Valley uh, culture of, uh, you know, let's build something and make money and, and not stop to think about any possible future implications of what we're doing. Yeah, that, no, I, that, I, that I, I agree with that. that. I, I, I 100% agree with that. What I'm saying is it's, it's, we're not we're not dealing with a company that maybe um, like like some of this some of this governance has never even existed in the company. So um, I'm not saying they shouldn't be faulted. What I'm saying is we're thinking about this as an organization that that um, that that very clearly uh, d- decided um, made made a ton of decisions to go against um, what the, what the public might want. I just don't think that's a hundred percent true. I think there are certain people that may have made small decisions that they, led. I think that they never thought problems. about what the public might want. Um, so I don't, th- I don't think it occurred to them that there so, might be an issue with with what they were doing. So I I, uh, I I I don't. I guess I don't agree or disagree with that. Just say you disagree with her. You quite, you quite. This, this is open discussion, Mendel. To, if, you, if you don't agree with um, Sally, just say it. I, I have, but but that's not the most important point I wanted to make. And the, and this is so there there are two there are two pieces here that we're that we're not that we're not looking at completely. One is that there are thousands and thousands of small businesses that have benefited from the targeting capabilities of Facebook and other services like it, right? And these are companies that previously wouldn't have been able to reach the, the, the types of targets um, and, and reach them as efficiently and cheaply as they are. So with, um, with all this negativity also comes the fact that they've created an ecosystem of business building and discovery um, that, that has also probably immeasurably helped um, our our communities and and us as people, as much as it's, um, or maybe less than than it's hurt um, us uh, information wise. What's better or worse? I don't know. Uh, last thing, this this is this is very much not the only company 
doing this. They're under fire. Google, um, Google probably has more lawyers, right? Um, uh, there's, there's Twitter, there's countless other ad beacons. I used to sell online or, uh, sorry, I used to buy online advertising. I used to Equifax and, and these large organizations that, that even before the breach that we see as trusted or used to see as, as trusted agencies, um, they're not trusted at all. They, they sell um, the data via API to advertisers um, well before Facebook started uh, doing this. And, and these ad beacons were capable of following you around the internet and understanding how much you make, whether you have a dog, what your spouse makes, what you make, what, uh, you know, what your, your eating and drinking preferences are, where you spend your money and how you spend your money. All yes. Oh, it's it, yes. Facebook. Facebook is hardly alone in this. It it it's a it's become a pervasive culture. It, it was pervasive in in some areas before. I remember, it must be ten years ago now. I went to a, a an event at, at, at Google, and you know, Larry Page basically said, you know, we know more about you than your credit card company does, and it's. Uh, you know, I think there are some people who figure the, the privacy is a, is a an acceptable trade-off for, uh, you know, the benefits of, of, you know, being able to target ads for your business or, or all of these things. But that Morton's point about how, you know, most people simply don't think about it at all and then are shocked and horrified uh, is a, a valid one. And I think, you know, kind of all of us as, as developers and as business people ourselves kind of have to think about, you know, is what we, you know, is this, you know, really useful way of, uh, you know, getting more business something that, that, you know, does it have ethical implications or potential legal implications? I mean, it's a good thing Google has all those lawyers because they're being sued in Europe. I'm sorry, Chris. Um, I want to go for the break, but before that, I just want Tom um, to see if he wants to um, say anything about this, and then I'm going to go sure. for the break. What do you reckon, Tom? Well, actually, is I think a really interesting story, and what I think you're going to start to see coming out of this is that people are used to people having their data, like Mendel was saying, but what I don't think people are used to is the modeling that was done. Um, and even what's kind of scary about it is you start to play out. So, I mean, effectively what they did was, is they looked at personality, you know, personality scores, they looked at likes and they figured out how to match personalities based on likes. And you start to think through scenarios that people could be using, particularly in the political realm. Um, you know, and particularly when you start using APIs to pull data from multiple things. So you might pull someone's job history from say uh, LinkedIn and you might pull certain other things. And, and really the analysis could be done by an undergraduate. It's scary when you start to think of the AI and the things that Watson can pull off. Um, and you start to bring these different data points together. And this is going to be, I mean, the power of this, the power to manipulate people, I think particularly in the political realm, you know, you can fig- you'll, you'll be able to build models that say, these people are most likely to vote for these people. We're going to push them information that they're way ahead to hopefully not get them to the polls. And the people that are in the middle, we're going to push them. We know that maybe they're pro-government, but they're small, or they're small government, but they're pro-environment. So we're going to push this this particular candidates, the particular uh, the particular um, policies that they're interested in. I think it's. It, I think that's going to be the really interesting discussion. Is that we're kind of seeing. You know, it's one thing to say, "Hey, I went to a car website, and now I get retargeted with car ads." Um, or I'm, you know, approaching getting over 50 and I get lots of W-A-A-R-P, you know, ads and it's sort of depressing. But, you know, that kind of level we're used to. But this is taking things to another level and really it's just the tip of the iceberg of what's possible. Oh, I think that's great. Um, before we go to the break, I'm going to talk about my sponsor of the show and it's a company that Tom knows well, um, Intelligence WP. And what is Intelligent WP? Well, it puts your Google Analytics on steroids. It provides loads of information which you can access in the backside of your WordPress um, website. And it just really helps with the confusion around getting real data that means something to you through Google Analytics. And I suggest that you go to Intelligence WP website 
have a look at the product. It's not crippled. You can freely download it, install it. And they also got other packages where they will help you set up your Google Analytics to work with this great package and get some real data that will help your business. And I just think it's fantastic. And I've tried to help them as much as, and I really appreciate their sponsorship. Thank you, Tom. And Ron, sure. it's been great working with you and I've tried to help as much as possible. Um, folks, um, we're going to go. Pardon? Oh, I'm sorry. If I just mention something real quick, we've got the, uh, the Ninja Forms intelligence. Oh, yes, you've got your Ninja Form thing, haven't you? Yeah, pretty excited well, about that. Well, go and tell us about it quickly. Um, so it just, it, you know, it makes it very simple. Uh, normally setting up conversion tracking. And, you know, the most important thing to do when you're doing analytics is tracking uh, desired events, conversion tracking. And normally it's going into two or three systems, setting up a bunch of different things, doing some coding and so forth. And we just wanted to make it dirt easy to track all of your forms. Um, plus, one of the other things that, you know, uh, marketers have a little pet peeve is when, you know, a developer goes and creates a new form and now it's not being tracked. So it's sort of, you, there's ways that, you know, all your forms can be tracked. You can specialize it and so forth. It's just making that easy so people aren't missing out on those conversions. Oh, it sounds great. Oh, really amazing. Um, so I'm going to go for the back from, uh, we're going to go for our break. I will be t letting my great friend John Lott take over the show after we come back from the break because I've got to go and help a sick friend and take him to hospital and your friends um, I'm off to do my duty and help a friend basically so hopefully I can get, get a full five star gold for that so um, <laughs> I'll see you next week folks and I'm sure the show's going to get a lot better with my co-host running it I'll see you next week folks do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30 day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. Right, John, I'm going to leave it and hopefully you've got control and continue the discussion, John. Come back and uh, do a better job of the me. All right. Well, thanks for the hot tag, brother. Um, so our third story this week is from the Kinsta blog. Uh, preparing your WordPress site for the upcoming Google Mobile First Index. And I want to turn to Adam. Adam, what are your thoughts on this? What steps should website owners be taking? Well, it's funny. I'm, I'm the, uh, it's, it's funny. We see John's space. Oh, he has to leave it up, <laughs> but he's gone. Um, I'm always the, uh, the naysayer antagonist here. Um, uh, not every site, Okay, every site should have mo uh, it should be mobile responsive. But I look at my own analytics, only like 10% of the traffic on my website because of the type of content that I have is actually even on a mobile device. So, um uh just because you have a website doesn't mean that people are actually going to it through their mobile phone. And I know my, my website's a perfect example. I get a lot of traffic. I get thousands of people on my website each day and only the tiniest sliver is on a, uh, uh, is on a, um, uh, mobile device. However, you know, I tell you, I think it's these old school websites that just won't go away or die. I mean, I tell you, my advice is always every two years, you, you pretty much need to be looking at getting an, an updated website every two years. And so if you did that two years ago or last year or two years ago, or three years ago, you would have had a mobile responsive um a mobile responsive uh, website. I think what I'm most curious about is obviously if you, you, you want your website to, to load at any kind of a, a fast pace, 
your first culprit, we talked about PHP and your hosting provider uh, having adequate hosting resources. What I'm most interested in is this AMP thing. I'm sure Morton has a lot of, I think he had a lot of opinions in the past about AMP, how it's been kind of half-baked. However, it is just very important to make sure your website looks great on every device as a base standard for the past three years. (laughs) Okay, I'll let somebody else (laughs) go now. Definitely. And um, I'll I'll tag in Morton in just a second, but I want to ask Chris, there is an interesting part of this article where they uh, held up HubSpot as an example where they simplified uh, not only their layout, but their forms and and, uh, their site structure for mobile to make it easier for people to navigate. Uh, Have you experienced that at Lifter LMS or what uh, sort of considerations have you made or, or do you teach uh, people over after LMS? That's a great question. I, I personally love it when a theme designer takes a mobile first approach. Uh, like, and, and sometimes when you get good at a skill on the web, it's about taking things away after a certain point. Um, a case in point with that, with Lifter specifically, if you're building an online learning site, the focus is really on the content much more than it is on the flashy design. It's about usability and content. That's why Sujay over at Brainstorm Force and the Astro team, they have a option in their theme for Lifter LMS that uh, they call it distraction-free learning, where they take stuff away. It's a similar concept that people have used. In yeah. Oh, uh-oh. Weather? <laughs> yeah, something, something happened. Yeah. Sorry about that. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's about, sometimes it's about taking things away and keeping the focus. And if people are consuming content on the phone, uh, it's just very important to move options and make sure people can get to the content easily and remain, the, remain focused. So that's what I'm seeing a lot of minimalism when it comes to teaching online, at least from the website perspective. It's essential because it's about the content and the learning and the results. And uh, yeah, so that's what I'm seeing. People are taking things away and the whole concept, like the holy grail, the honeypot of it all, which hasn't been figured out by tech yet, is portable content, portable learning. We need to be, people need to be able to take that content offline be able to really use it on a, on a terrible internet connection. Um, so the way technology adapts for that, WordPress, websites, themes, plugins, all of that, um, has a lot of opportunity in it. I wanted to ask Morton, uh, there's a section in here where uh, they talk about Kinsta tried AMP, but then they went away from it. What would be some good instances where AMP might work for a site? And, you know, because I know that they're working with WordPress more closely now, uh, the folks at Google. Uh, there are so many pieces of this. Okay, so... Uh, you, you kind of have to understand the whole stack here to to make any sense of this. If we start with Google saying that they're going to start penalizing sites that are not mobile friendly, um, mobile is a simple way for Google or any other analytics engine to check whether or not content on the web is accessible, loads quickly, and everything else. And, and it, it stems back to their push from several years back that you should always design for mobile first because that like Chris said, reduces your craft and just makes you focus on content only and then make that accessible and then you can scale up your design as you get wider screens and it it just produces better communication and better, um, faster loading content and all that. Then, and that relates then again to uh, the global reach of the web. When you build stuff for the web, you're not building it for just North Americans or or Western Europeans with high-speed internet connections. You're also building it for people who live up in the north in Canada who are on basically DSL, no, sorry, dial-up modems at best. You're building it for people who live out in the bush in Australia. You're building it for everyone who's in a at, at a conference with a terrible Wi-Fi. That's yeah, and and there's a large percentage of Americans who only get internet through their cell phone. Um, and they might use their computer to access it. It's funny that Adam says the majority of his visitors uh, use computers. My response to that is, you have a very, very specific, very small niche 
that of an audience because that is not what the web looks like. The majority of people online use their mobile devices only to access. I think the last stat I saw was something like 19% of Americans only have, only have access to the internet through a mobile device. And that mobile device is like three years old. Um, so like that, that's the backdrop of all this, that Google has this, wants to have this role of pushing the web forward by saying, hey, we need to optimize the web and make it easier to access. And that is easiest done through mobile first. Then there are two pieces. There's AMP, which is this uh, proprietary-ish open source weird thing that uh, Google's doing that basically takes a lot of the stuff that's happening on your website and offloads it onto their servers, like your JavaScript and everything else, and standardizes the way things are loaded so that you only push content. So you're basically, it's almost like an API where you push just the content and then the AMP system handles all the heavy lifting of your menus and everything else to, in an effort to make it go faster. That's AMP. Then on the other side of that, you have progressive web apps, which is a method of using modern, server te- modern browser technologies to stash an application in the browser so that once you visited a website once, it becomes an application that sits in your browser on your device, either your computer or your phone or your tablet or whatever. And even if the internet goes away, you then have access to not just the posts you looked at, but maybe a couple of other ones too. And it gets stored into the system and can work offline, which is also what Chris was talking about. And all of these things kind of collate because eventually I think what will happen is uh, what Google's trying to do now is standardizing AMP as a thing that is not just a Google product, but is actually a way of doing things in web standards. Whether or not that actually happens is up for debate, but that's what they want to do. Um, uh, progressive web apps was something that was just pushed by a couple of companies, including Google. Now all the other browser companies have adopted it. I think the only browser that does not support progressive web apps out of the box right now is Safari, because Safari is the new IE. But and, but they're coming on board as well. So what we'll probably see within a year is a proposal for WordPress to start using service workers so that WordPress sites can become progressive web apps natively. Um, and all of this, this entire big mess, is about the same thing it's always been about, which is the entire reason why you publish content online is to publish content online. All the design and all the fancy shit that you put onto your site is actually a distraction from the content itself. What's happening is the web is kind of going away from this Baroque design thing that we started in the 90s where like everything was flash and it was crazy to just basically desktop publishing on the web where it gets simpler and simpler and simpler and more mini- or more minified and more um, minimalistic to the point where you just get content. And all these technologies are basically converging on that point. But isn't with AMP one of the biggest the uh, issues with, I'm oh, sorry, I was just going to say, well, hasn't been one of the biggest re- reasons against AMP and, and what basically not, I'm not just talking about AMP, I'm talking about just kind of the concept of what you were saying, simplifying it for the content is that doesn't serve uh, monetization, meaning you lose, isn't AMP, didn't AMP strip out banner ads and all the ways that a site owner can actually have the money to continue you uh, building their site and uh, growing their site and running their site? I think to a degree, yes. I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, the, the, the idea that we should monetize the internet with, with ads needs to go away. I mean, the most browsers now ship with ad blockers built in. There's a reason why people have ad blockers. It's because this concept that we invented in the early 2000s, that you can publish content online and have that content make money for you through advertising is what broke the internet. So we need to get away from that entire way of thinking around passive monetization of content and start reevaluating the um, value proposition of what content online is and how we make money from it. So I am all for a technology that just kills online advertising completely because it's a pervasive, horrible technology that does everything that we don't want, right? But that's just my attitude towards this. I think the reality is the ad networks we have today even like even the simplest ad solution you can come up with, like you go and sell an ad to someone and then you have a graphic or even a text link ad or something like that that you put onto your site. So there's no tracking, there's no JavaScript, there's nothing fancy. Doing that makes the experience of reading the content harder for end users. And what you end up with is people like me, 
who have dyslexia, who don't want to read all this shit and who gets very confused by all these inline ads. So we end up taking tools off the internet that strip everything out and then we read the content without the ads anyway. So the, if your argument against AMP or any of these other technologies is they kill ads, then my pushback is ads shouldn't be there. If you're polluting your content with ads, then stop it. Then do something else. Then find another way of making money. You can go dig someone's yard. You'll make more money that way. I mean, seriously, the majority of sites that have ads don't earn $100 from those ads in the lifetime of the site. So the point of putting ads on the site doesn't, is simply not, it doesn't hold water. So that's not an argument. I think the main argument that people have had against AMP and uh, other things is that in the beginning, a component of AMP would actually uh, hijack the, uh, the URL of your site. So when you went to a URL, instead you would go to like AMP dot whatever, and it was a completely different URL. They're kind of moving away from that with what they call AMP canonical, where um, when you go to an AMP site, and then you follow the link, you actually end up on the real site, or if you share it, you end up on the real site. And you can see there's a shift happening there. It's away from Google hosting everything to it being hosted on your site. And I think the end goal of that is probably to make uh, your site serve up AMP-friendly content so that it can hook into the systems without AMP holding your content for you. Um, we should get Weston Reuter on here to talk about that. He was working on the AMP plugin for WordPress. Uh, but it, it's, you know, it's an, it's an interesting thing. It'll be interesting to see what that, how that turns out in years to come. I'm going to close out this subject with, uh, I'm going to ask Tom, uh, when, it, when it comes to tracking uh, keywords on mobile, when it comes to tracking like activity on mobile versus desktop, what kind of things should people be looking at as a site owner? Well, probably the, the simplest thing to do is, um, you know, doing conversion tracking. And then in Google Analytics, it makes it real simple to just map back to um, what device were they using. One of the things I also recommend doing is I'm um, tracking in some way like a custom dimension, the viewport sizes that you're dealing with. And of course, you've got, you've got the widths, um, but the viewports help, help a lot. And so to start breaking things down by, you know, a typical responsive site might have five breakpoints. Um, and so that way you can sit there and say, all right, well, at this break point, we've got this amount of conversion because like something we see happen all the time is people have like a CTA to say an ebook or something like that off to the side or maybe a pop-up and that, and those, th and the, the CTA might drop below the content uh, when it's collapsed down or the pop-up won't look right on certain, on certain devices. And so, you know, being able to look at your conversion, you know, track your conversion rates and map it back to viewport sizes um, is one of the best ways to kind of know, do you have a problem? Excellent. We're going to hit our last topic, and this is just going to be uh, lightning quick because we're, we're, we're running up on time. But um, the uh, Let's Encrypt has added wildcard certificates. Uh, they're now available. I want to ask Sally, how is this uh, going to make issuing SSLs easier? What kind of impact is this going to have on your clients? <clears throat> well, this is the, uh, you know, when Let's Encrypt came out a couple of years ago, it was pretty revelatory because suddenly you could get an SSL certificate without paying a, a chunk of money. Uh, now, you know, <clears throat> Mendel's employer may not have been very happy about that, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it made life better for a lot of us. And of course, you know, in addition to the mobile, Google has been pushing uh, HTTPS and, you know, for a good reason. Um, but one thing you couldn't get was uh, wildcard certificates that were valid for, you know, multiple subdomains. So you had to get a, although, you know, if, if you had a host that set it up so that you could easily in, install them, you could, you know, get a separate uh, <clears throat> SSL certificate from Let's Encrypt for every subdomain. But if you have, say, a WordPress multi-site <clears throat> install that lets people create their own, um, you know, their own subsites and automatically issues them uh, subdomains via wildcard, uh, you couldn't use Let's Encrypt. And now you will be able to. I, I don't know yet whether the wildcard SSL has been, you know, incorporated into like the cPanel plugin and the other things that, that hosting companies use to, to let you install these easily. But the fact that they now exist uh, is, uh, <clears throat> you know, a really good thing. Uh, so, you know, just making it easier and cheaper for people to have, you know, to encrypted 
transmissions of their data uh, back and forth, uh, you know, to and from that site uh, is important. Um, by the way, uh, we like we weren't upset about it. Um, the 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 reality is that um, the hosts. Uh, we, we, we lead on a lot of things, but, uh, sometimes, uh, it's, it's good for the community to lead too. Um, and again, we, we dig what is important for, for the customer or the, the end user. Right. So, um, so I think overall this, it was encrypt was, was a positive, um, thing. Then again, maybe my employer wouldn't like me saying that either. Who knows? I, I break a lot of rules on this show. No. Yes. Well, it's, it's, I, I noticed that, um, you know, there are only a few uh, hosting plans, or at least the last time I checked, only a few hosting plans at GoDaddy that offer less encrypt. Um, uh, we, we, well, so point of clarification, we may not offer Let's Encrypt on many plans. However, we do offer free GoDaddy SSL um, on many plans. Um, and so the, the point of clarification is, what is good for the customer um, uh, in some of these cases is uh, free S SSL, right? And uh, and we've we've made that change on quite a few plans, even though it doesn't say let's encrypt. It's the GoDaddy um, uh, signing authority, which um, clearly we've spent a lot. No, of time as as, as long as it's valid, I don't I don't you know care about the uh, <clears throat> the source of it, but. Uh, you know, back when, uh, you know, there was no alternative but to uh, pay money for your SSL, GoDaddy seemed to be uh, one of the major sellers of, of those. That's true. And sometime if we have more time, we can get into um, all of the costs associated with um, being uh, being an SSL signing authority and all of the support that comes along um, with that, 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 uh, that creates some of those costs around it. But uh, I think, I think John said we're close to out of time. Yeah, we're, we're running up on it. I don't want to keep everybody. <laughs> we got people bouncing out. Uh, we do want to thank uh, some of the panelists. They had to leave. They had other appointments that they had to get to. That would be uh, Chris Badgett from Lifter LMS. Uh, our host, Jonathan Denwood, he had to take someone to, to a hospital appointment. Nat Impressor from uh, WP Crafter. But for the rest of the panel, um, if everybody could tell us uh, again who you are, how to find you, anything you got going on, uh, we'll start with Tom. Uh, yeah, my name is Tom Kraken. Um, I'm the creator of Intelligence for WordPress. Um, and so it's, it's a system um, to kind of blow out analytics um, to understand more what's re what's, what important things are going on in your website and do what kind of efforts and content, um, marketing, traffic sources, so forth, um, add to value on your website. Awesome. Morton? Uh, you can find me on the internet at, uh, at Morton, because that's my name. Uh, if you want to hear my opinions on many, many, many things uh, that relate to what we talked about today, I published an article on Smashing Magazine yesterday called Using Ethics in Web Design, uh, mm -hmm. which is... Uh, a small 9,000 word uh, EPOS on uh, uh, how actual ethics work in uh, technology. So rather than saying, here's a list of things you should and shouldn't do, it breaks down a complete framework based on four moral philosophies and explains how we can actually use ethics to make better decisions in the long term that help people. Um, humbly will say that I think this is the first time anyone has actually published an ethics article about ethics in web design or technology. All the other stuff I've read so far is basically things that use the word ethics, but doesn't talk about what ethics actually is. So that's what I tried to do. Well, there, there, there's a shortage of philosophers in the industry, which is probably a problem. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying to do my part to lift the, lift the quality of the conversation with that monster article. So go read it. Yes, absolutely. I, yeah, well, maybe we'll discuss that next week. Uh, Mendel, who be you? Oh, yeah. So I'm Mendel. Uh, I work at GoDaddy, um, specifically on GoDaddy.com uh, slash pro. Uh, two things of interest given this conversation. Number one, GoDaddy Pro offers free SSLs. 
Number two, GoDaddy Pro offers the latest version of PHP for WordPress sites. So I'm going to mic drop that right there. There you go. Sally. You can find me at WPFangirl.com. Uh, you can find my meetup at EastBayWP.com. And I am at Sally Getch on Twitter. And if you can spell my name, you will find me. I am unique in Google. And myself, I'm John Locke. Like I said before, my website is Lockdown Design. I help manufacturing companies with SEO. And for the WP Tonic Posse in effect, and for uh, Jonathan Denwood, we're saying peace out and catch you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.